There is indeed mention made in Scripture of some backsliders who turn back unto perdition and never can be renewed again unto repentance. These never come to Christ and never truly desire to come. For them nothing remains but a fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation to devour the adversaries. But we read in Jeremiah of the Lord calling upon his backsliding Israel to return. Jeremiah 3.12 And in Hosea God says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. Hosea 14.4 This is a most gracious and encouraging promise. We find in fact that God has received great backsliders upon their repentance and has freely pardoned their enormous sins. I believe that the deplorable backslidings of David and his subsequent pardon and restoration were left on record that convinced backsliders might not despair of mercy. And our Lord intimates that Peter, when recovered from his shameful fall, should make it his business to strengthen his brethren. Some of this class may perhaps allege that they are afraid that they never were truly of the number of the Israel of God. That perhaps is a question which you will never be able to solve in this life. But as to the point in hand, it matters not. If you will now come to Christ, you will be received. Come, and he will in no wise cast you out. It is commonly said that men are forward to believe whatever is connected with their own interest. This in common cases is true, but it is also true that when some very great and unexpected good news is brought to us, we find it very difficult to credit it. It seems too good to be true. When Jacob's sons returned to their father after Joseph had made himself known to them and informed him that his son Joseph was alive and governor of all Egypt, the old man could not believe the report until he lifted up his eyes and saw the wagons which had been sent to convey him to Egypt. So the convinced sinner finds it very hard to believe that a free and full salvation is offered to him and that Christ stands ready to receive him and not only to pardon all his sins but give him a sure title to the heavenly inheritance. It seems a thing almost impossible that he should be thus highly favored and therefore when he should with humble confidence lay hold on eternal life he stands parley and hesitating and demurring. He is prone to think that there must be some mistake in the business and that this good news cannot be true, at least in relation to himself. But when the truth stands out clearly revealed, he begins to understand what he never did before, the absolute and perfect freeness of salvation and how it is that Christ receives the coming sinner just as he is in all his guilt and vileness. Then, indeed, he cannot but rejoice and wonder at the suitableness of the plan of salvation to his character and necessities that it comes down to his wretched and helpless circumstances and takes him out of the horrible pit in the miry clay and sets his feet on a rock, establishes his going, and puts a new song into his mouth, even praise unto God. Since awakened, convicted sinners are so prone to unbelief on this point, it will not be superfluous labor to offer some cogent reasons to convince such that Christ will not cast off any who come to him, whatever may have been their former character or sins, and I would first mention that all who come are drawn by the Father. No man, says Christ, can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Those who do truly come are such as were given to him by the Father. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Now this drawing of the Father is the fruit of his everlasting love. We love him because he first loved us. And surely Christ will not cast out those whom the Father has loved and given to him and effectually drawn by his grace. 
But you may be ready to reply, How shall I know that I am of the number given by the Father to the Son? I answer that you need no other better evidence of it than your being willing to come. Surely you know that you did not make yourself willing. If you have come to Christ or are willing to come, I am sure that you will ascribe it entirely to the grace of God. Others, as good by nature and practice as you, remain in love with the world and under the power of sin. Why is this? You must say with Paul, by the grace of God I am what I am. The choice did not commence with you, but with him. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And as Christ concurs with the Father in this drawing, for he says, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. He surely will not cast out the poor penitent whom he has drawn to his feet. No, no, never. Him that cometh he will in no wise cast out. Again, Christ redeemed by the shedding of his precious blood every soul that comes to him, and the impelling motive which induced him to die for sinners was love, unspeakable love, who loved us and gave himself for us. Can anyone then think or suspect that when Christ sees the travail of his soul coming to him, he will cast him out? It would be like blasphemy to say that he would. No, he delights to see the fruit of his painful sufferings even unto death. It was predicted in connection with the impressive description of his sufferings and death, that he should see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Again, the Holy Spirit is the agent in convincing men of sin and bringing them to Christ. And this Holy Spirit is sent by the Son as well as the Father to accomplish this work. And when it is effected, when the soul is made willing to bow his neck to the easy yoke of Christ, will he cast him out? Impossible. But the honor and glory of the Redeemer is concerned in this manner. God is not glorified in any transaction upon earth so much as in the conversion of a sinner. There is a joy in heaven that the repentance of one sinner, more than over ninety and nine just persons who need no repentance, and every redeemed and renewed soul is a jewel in the mediatorial crown. We may learn the willingness of Jesus Christ to receive sinners, not only by his frequent gracious declarations, but by his conduct in regard to such as applied to him. Christ's personal ministry was confined to the people of Israel, and when he sent out the twelve and afterwards the seventy, their commission was restricted within the same limits. Yet when a woman of Canaan came to implore his aid, he did not reject her, though she was descended from an accursed race. At first, indeed, he seemed to give her a repulse, but it was intended only to bring more clearly to view the strength of her faith. And his address to her in the end is truly remarkable. O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee as thou wilt. And when the centurion, another pagan, applied to him to come and heal his child, he did not reject his suit because he was a heathen, but said of him, Verily I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. When the vilest sinners and publicans and harlots came penitently to his feet, he rejected none of them, although his gracious intention to such greatly injured his reputation in the view of the scribes and the Pharisees. His condescending behavior towards that woman who was notorious as a sinner is in the highest degree touching. He was dining in the house of a Pharisee, and this infamous but penitent woman, urged by the strength of her feelings, found her way into the house. And while he was reclining on a couch at dinner, she came up behind him and wept such a flood of tears on his feet that she is said to have washed his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. This led the Pharisee to entertain a suspicion that Christ could not be a teacher sent from God or he would have known the infamous character of this woman. 
Jesus, knowing his thoughts, uttered the beautiful parable of the two debtors, and then making the application to the case of the penitent woman, said, Wherefore I say unto you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. When our blessed Lord was hanging on the cross, he was applied to by one of the malefactors crucified with him. This man being one of the two selected from all the prisoners in Jerusalem for public execution on this occasion, was no doubt deeply stained with the guilt of enormous crime. But was his suit denied? Oh no, the response was full of mercy. This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. Who can fathom the freeness and riches of the grace of Christ? It is indeed unsearchable riches. Paul may with propriety be here introduced. According to his own acknowledgement, he was a murderer and a blasphemer, but he obtained mercy and was made an apostle, a chief instrument in propagating that gospel which he once attempted to destroy among the Gentiles. Many of the first converts from among the heathen were notorious for the foulest and vilest crimes. For the apostle, in writing to the Corinthians, after giving a black list of crimes which exclude the persons guilty of them from the kingdom of heaven, says... And such were some of you. But you are washed. But you are sanctified. But you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. But perhaps no example of the extent of divine mercy and his sovereign freedom can equal the pardon extended to the very persons who had imbrued their hands in Christ's own blood. The blood which they shed procured their salvation. And Christ seems to have had special compassion for the bloody city of Jerusalem. Before his death he wept over it and lamented its doom. And after his resurrection, when he met his disciples in a body, he gave direction that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Accordingly, on the day of Pentecost, Peter charges the sin of crucifying the Lord Jesus upon the consciences of those whom he addressed, saying, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Did Peter tell them that as they had committed this enormous crime, Christ would not pardon them? By no means. He calls upon them to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And these greatest of sinners were that very day received into the church and continued steadfast in their attachment to Christ and profession of His name. Innumerable instances since that day have occurred of the repentance of the greatest sinners, and no true penitent has ever been rejected. If one instance could be produced of any sinner being rejected whoever came to Christ, this might create some doubt in the soul agonized with a sense of guilt. But as there is no such example, the trembling sinner feeling that he is justly exposed to the wrath of God, need not hesitate nor delay to come at once to Christ, with the assurance that however vile and guilty he may be, he shall meet a welcome reception. O sinner! You are welcome to come to Jesus Christ. All difficulty as to Christ's willingness to receive returning sinners, being as it is hope removed, the only thing which remains to be considered is, what is to be understood by coming to Christ? And what are the steps which a sinner must take to come? It is too obvious to need any remark that a mere bodily approach is not the thing intended. 
Many of Christ's bitterest enemies were often near his person as Judas when he betrayed him with a kiss. The soldiers that bound him and smote him and scourged him and nailed him to the cross. But this kind of approach to Christ did those who came near him no good. The coming to Christ, of which we have been treating, is the act of the anxious mind which seeks salvation from the burden of sin. And apprehending that Christ is the only Redeemer, trusts in Him. Christ is exhibited in the Gospel as the only mediator by whom we can be reconciled to God, and offers to do for the sinner whatever is requisite to save him from the curse of the law, and from the blindness and pollution of sin itself, and coming to him is the same as receiving him in that character or as sustaining those offices which relate to salvation. There is but one step to be taken, strictly speaking, in coming to Christ, and that is believing in him with all the heart. We are not required to repent and do good works before we come, but to come to Him to give us repentance unto life and to create us anew to good works. But though the act of coming is a single act, yet there are some things which are experienced before this act can be rationally performed. No unawakened careless sinner remaining in that state will come, for the whole need not a physician but they that are sick. The sinner who knows nothing of Christ as he is revealed in the Scriptures cannot come until he is instructed in regard to the character of Christ. Faith therefore comes by hearing the Word. A soul perverted by erroneous opinions respecting the fundamental doctrines of religion cannot come until he is delivered from those errors. That man who believes Christ to be the promised Messiah but thinks that he is no more than a good man and a prophet, cannot come to Christ until this fundamental error be removed. The soul that truly comes to Christ must be persuaded that he is indeed the Son of God and possessed of divine perfections. The soul convinced of its sin first seeks Christ as he is an atoning priest. That which it wants is a part in the sin and reconciliation with an offended God. Christ is a great high priest has offered up himself as an atoning sacrifice for sin, and as a priest he has entered into the holy place made without hands, there to sprinkle, as it were, his life-giving blood, and to intercede for all who come unto him. When in his character he is apprehended by the seeking sinner, confidence in him is produced. It is seen now how God can be just and yet the justifier of the ungodly who believes in Jesus. It is seen that God, having accepted Christ's atoning sacrifice, can receive the guilty sinner into favor and adopt a rebel as a child. These views, accompanied by this trust in the Lord Jesus, as having made a complete atonement for our sins, is the act of coming to Christ. But as a soul that is regenerated feels sin in itself to be a burden, it looks to Christ for a deliverance from all the disorders of the depraved mind. He is therefore received and trusted to deliver the soul from the deep stains of iniquity, and by the light of his truth to guide it in the right way. Let it be remembered that this coming to Christ is not a solitary act of the believing soul. It is one which must be continually repeated. The justified sinner is every moment dependent on his Savior without whom he can do nothing. As he is at first justified by faith, so he lives by faith, walks by faith, and by faith overcomes all his enemies and bring forth the fruits of holiness and peace. 
But some will be ready to say, There is no coming to Christ unless we are drawn. And why then are we blamed for not coming? This is not the language of the truly convinced sinner, for he sees and feels that he is guilty of the damning sin of unbelief, and that he deserves to be punished for this sin above all others, for it is this which seals the guilt of all others upon his soul. Dead in sin, it is certain that he will perform no holy action, but he is still a rational and accountable being. The law of God does not lose its authority to command because we have become sinful. It will never do to plead sin as an excuse for sin or to attempt to justify sinful acts by pleading that we have an evil heart. This, instead of being a valid apology, is the very ground of our condemnation. If you feel that your heart is thus blinded and depraved, this conviction of your miserable sinful state would humble you deeply in the dust and induce you to cry more earnestly to God for His life-given Spirit. Often, however, when Christ sends forth His gracious invitations to believe, He enables a soul by the energy of His Spirit, accompanying the call to come and receive His grace. He accompanies His Word with a quickening efficacy, and the dead hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Our whole dependence is on the influence of the Holy Spirit. Paul may plant in Apollos water, but God giveth the increase. Let us now review the truth which has been inculcated. Christ is an able and willing Savior who will in no wise cast out any soul that comes to Him. The grace of God through Christ is perfectly free, that is, He requires no qualification or merit in those who come. They are invited to apply to Him in all their guilt and pollution, that they may from His gracious hands receive pardon and renovation. There is no obstacle in the way of any sinner's coming but what exists in Himself. The door of mercy cannot be set wider open than it is. The invitations of Christ could not be more kind and full. The whole blame of the sinner's ruin who refuses to come to Christ will lie at his own door. The only obstacle is his own perverseness and unwillingness. Christ was willing to give life to his greatest enemies if they would come to him, for he complains, You will not come unto me that ye may have life. The conversion of a single soul is a work of God only. The same power which caused light to shine out of darkness must shine into our hearts. Creation is a work proper to God only, but conversion is a new creation and requires power as really divine as that by which the worlds were formed. God has directed the gospel to be preached to every creature without discrimination, and everyone who hears it has a divine warrant to receive it. And if he does, he has a faithfulness of God pledged for his everlasting salvation. As the efficacy of the Word depends on the energy of the Holy Spirit, all Christians should be incessant and fervent in their supplications for this Spirit of grace to be poured out. The sinners may be converted. We have encouragement to hope that the time is coming and perhaps drawing near, when conversions will be multiplied far beyond the experience of former ages, when the Jews as a nation obtain mercy of the Lord, and when all the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. The following set of dialogues is called the Colporter in the Roman Catholic. It is very informative for many reasons. One, it shows how to properly witness to a Roman Catholic. It shows some of the errors of the Catholic doctrine. And 
if by any chance a Roman Catholic is among our listeners, it will cause you to look in to the creeds of your own religion, for the narrator himself was a Roman Catholic. Culpeter, can I sell you a Bible or Testament this morning? They are very cheap, Roman Catholic. We do not approve of your Bible. They are not correct, and our priests warn us against them. Culpeter, do they furnish you with such as are correct? Have you a Bible in the house? Roman Catholic, no, our priests as a common people have no need of the Bible. They do not know how to interpret it, and reading it would do them more harm than good. He says that whatever is necessary he will teach us, and if we believe as the church believes, it is enough. Culpeter, but may not a priest be a bad man? Is it not possible that he may not know the truth and therefore cannot lead you in the right way? Is it wise to venture your salvation upon the fidelity of a fallible man? Roman, the thing which you suppose is possible, priests are but men and some of them frail men, but we can do no better than commit our souls to their keeping. If we should offend them, they might refuse to give us absolution. Culpeter. We never read that Christ or his apostles ever forbade the people to read the scriptures. On the contrary, they exhorted men to search the scriptures and blame them for not knowing what was written in them. All scripture is said to be profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The law under the old dispensation was read in the hearing of all the people every seventh year, and in the synagogues the law and the prophets were read every Sabbath day. Timothy is said to have known the scriptures from his childhood, and the Bible contains instructions and exhortations addressed to all sorts of men. If the priest should be ignorant or negligent, the people must perish for lack of knowledge if they are not permitted to read the scriptures. You speak of absolution. You do not really believe that any sinful man has power to forgive sin. The thing is incredible. Man can only declare the terms on which God will grant forgiveness, but he cannot tell when those conditions are complied with. Suppose a man to confess his sins to the priest in hypocrisy, still regarding iniquity in his heart. Can the priest forgive him? Well, certainly not. He can only pronounce a true penitent forgiven. The priest's absolution of an impenitent sinner cannot avail. But, friend, you have now arrived at mature age and have from your infancy been under the instruction of your priests. Do tell me what you have learned about the way of salvation. How shall a sinful man obtain the favor of God and what is necessary to prepare him for heaven? Roman Catholic. Why, sir, we must lead a good life. And when we commit sin, and what man is there that sinneth not, we must confess our sins to the priest and obtain absolution, and then submit to the penances which he lays upon us. And as to preparation for heaven, we must make satisfaction for our venial offenses while we live, or if that is not done, we must suffer the fires of purgatory until we are prepared for heaven. Besides, when we are near to death, we have a sacrament intended for the express purpose of preparing the soul for death. This sacrament is called extreme unction and consists in anointing the sick with consecrated oil by which grace is communicated to the departing soul. Thus you see our religion contains all that is needful to gain the favor of God in preparation for heaven. Culpeter, well now my friend, be not offended at my plainness when I tell you that this is not the religion of the Bible. If your priest has taught you this system is a way of salvation revealed in the Bible, he has deceived you. And as your salvation is at stake, you ought, like the Bereans, to examine for yourself whether these things be so. 
The religion inculcated in the Bible is essentially different from this. It is a method of saving sinners by grace without the merits of good works. Pardon is freely granted to every penitent believer only for the sake of the obedience of Christ unto death. His blood is the only sacrifice which atones for sin. We never read in the New Testament of sinners being directed to make satisfaction for their own sins. Justification is declared to be by faith and not by the works of the law, so that God is said to justify not the righteous but the ungodly who believeth in Jesus. Our works and merit have no part in the business. Indeed, the sinner is justified before he begins to perform any works that are truly good. And even these could never be the ground of justification because they are all imperfect. I know that, I know that your Dewey Bible has a phrase, do penance. Unless you do penance. But unless by penance you understand sincere repentance, the translation is evidently wrong, as every scholar must confess. Where in all the New Testament do you find any such thing commanded, or ever once spoken of, as is now called penance? But as to repentance, the best preachers in your church allow that repentance of the heart is the essence of all true penance. And the Scriptures speak of nothing else except the evidence which we must give of our sincerity, namely works meet for repentance. And this leads me to remark that according to the teaching of the New Testament, a thorough change of heart is necessary to our entering the kingdom of heaven. Your priest, no doubt, has taught you that you are regenerated in infant baptism and that no other conversion is needed. But in the Bible, there is no such doctrine. If all who have received infant baptism were truly regenerated, they would show the evidence of the change in their conduct and conversation. They would lead holy lives. But in many such persons, we see no such thing. They give no evidence of a holy nature. But without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Your outward ceremonies and sacraments, as you call them, cannot prepare you for heaven. The Jews gloried in their circumcision, but the Apostle Paul in many places teaches that this and other ceremonies profited nothing. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything but faith which worketh by love. The new creature. True religion is spiritual, has its seed in the heart, and does not consist in meat or drinks, that is, in outward ceremonies, but in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. What Paul says about the real Jew is equally true in regard to the Christian, for true religion has ever been the same. He says he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, that is only by complying with external ceremonies, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and not of the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. And as to purgatory, it is entirely a human invention. There is not one word in the whole Bible that makes the least mention of any such place. Besides, the whole doctrine of making satisfaction for our own sins is unscriptural and is highly derogatory to the sacrifice of Christ, as though that was insufficient. This doctrine, too, has introduced the most shameful abuses through the cunning and avarice of the priests who have found it to be a gold mine, certainly a most successful device for drawing money from the people by working on their tender feelings of compassion. Ask your priest to put his finger on a single text in the Bible which speaks of purgatory. And if I cannot show that it is misinterpreted, I will give up the point. And again you say that by the sacrament of extreme unction, as you call it, the dying are prepared for their change. But if the dying person be impenitent, will anointing him with oil save him? But the scriptures speak of no such sacrament. The custom of anointing with oil was anciently a very common remedy in sickness, and when the disciples were sent forth to heal the sick, they were commanded by the Lord to anoint them with oil as a sign of healing. And James directs the sick to send for the elders of the church, who should pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. But this ceremony or remedy was not used to prepare the dying for death. It was used to preserve them from death by the miraculous healing power which attended it. 
And here I think we have the true reason why the priests do not encourage the people to read the Bible. It is that they fear lest they should discover that the religion which they teach is not taken from the Bible. And if you go to tradition, you will find nothing like a prohibition of reading the Holy Scriptures and all the writings of the Christian fathers for many centuries. It was always the undisputed privilege of men, women, and children of every rank who could read to read the sacred scriptures. Nay, it was always considered an incumbent duty, which no Christian was at liberty to neglect. I must think, therefore, that in taking away the holy scriptures from the people, the priests are guilty of an enormous crime. They have taken away the key of knowledge. They have shut up the fountain of life which God had opened for all mankind. There is nothing in the whole Romish system which strikes me as more impious or more unreasonable. This single thing is enough to convince any unprejudiced man that their religion is not true Christianity. If it were, they would be glad to appeal to the Bible for proof of all their doctrines and all their practices. Whereas if a person acquainted with the Scriptures should be brought into a Romish chapel and should carefully attend to all the ceremonies and celebrating Mass, he would be ready to think that he had been introduced into a heathen temple rather than a Christian church. Roman Catholic, you have your way of thinking and I have mine, and we are not likely to convince one another. We live in a free country where every man has an equal right with others to form his own opinions and be of what religion he pleases. Yet, though I believe firmly in the old mother church as being the only true church and the only safe way to heaven, yet I must confess I never could see the reason why the scriptures are kept from us. Dialogue number two between the culprator and the Roman Catholic. Roman Catholic. I do not like any of your novelties in religion. I am for following the good old way. Yours is a new religion, only about 300 years old. But ours is more than 1,800 years old. Ours has come down in a right line from Christ and his apostles. Yours began with Luther and Calvin. Culpeter. Did you never hear, friend, that Paul predicted that there would be a great falling away before the end of the world? Suppose now that apostasy to have taken place. And suppose some pious men, by reading the scriptures to have discovered that the church was become corrupt and should endeavor to bring the people back to the religion inculcated by Christ and his apostles, which ought to be called the good old way, the errors and corruptions of an apostate church or the doctrines and worship of the New Testament restored. Certainly the latter. Now this is precisely the case. Your church has evidently departed from the scriptures and we are endeavoring to bring the people back to the true religion, which by degrees was forsaken by the whole Roman Catholic Church. Popery, then, is the novelty, and Protestantism, the old religion of the Bible. I have here a book with this very title, Popery and Novelty, and the things is proved by undoubted testimonies that a large part of the Romish religion has sprung up long since the times of the apostles. Catholic, I never can believe that Christ would leave his church to apostatize, for he has promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Culpeter, certainly the church of God will never become extinct. If it becomes corrupt, it will be reformed and restored to its primitive purity. And God is accomplishing something of this kind now. He has put it into the hearts of many to search the scriptures, and they have found that the Romish church and also the Oriental churches have become very degenerate. Still there has been a seed to serve him. In the midst of corruption, a few faithful souls have been found who have testified against the errors and sins of the time. And in sequestered valleys, a people have lived who continue to profess the true doctrines of Christianity. They have been long and cruelly persecuted, but not exterminated. These held the same doctrines as the reformers whom God raised up in these latter ages. 
the Jewish church fell away to idolatry in the time of Elijah, so that he thought that he alone was left of the worshippers of the true God. But God informed him that there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. A similar defection took place in the time of Manasseh and Ammon, in which time the scriptures were unknown among the people, as we learn from the fact that the book of Moses was found among the rubbish. And the, and the pious young Josiah, when he heard it read, rent his clothes and expressed the utmost grief, because the prescriptions of the divine law had not been obeyed for a long time. As it was then, so it is now with the Romish church. The scriptures, the scriptures though not lost, are kept back from the people by their priests and prelates. They are kept in ignorance and have no opportunity of judging whether what their friends teach them is agreeable to Scripture or not. Now certainly this is not a safe condition to rest in. But my object in seeking this conversation was not to enter into any dispute, but to have a serious discourse about vital piety. If your religion is right, it brings those who receive it to love God supremely and to love their fellow men. The question then which I propose for your consideration is a personal one. It is simply the question which our Savior after His resurrection propounded to Peter. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? I put it to your conscience. Do you feel a sincere love to the Lord Jesus Christ? Catholic. To be sure I do. Do you take me for a heathen or a reprobate that you ask me a Christian man such a question? Culpeter, I mean no offense, but a mere profession of love with the lips is easily made. Christ said of some that had a high opinion of themselves, I know you that you have not the love of God in you. And he also said to his disciples, If ye love me, keep my commandments. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Do you then obey from the heart all the commandments of God? One of these commandments is, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down to them nor serve them. Now it is a notorious fact that in all your churches you have images and that you bow down to them and worship them. Catholic, I have the Ten Commandments in my catechism at home, but there is no command forbidding us to worship images. You Protestants must have invented this to impose on the ignorant. Culpeter, here is a plain evidence of the craft and dishonesty of your priests. They have left out almost the whole of the second commandment of the Decalogue and have made one commandment out of the first two. And that they might make out the number ten, they have divided the tenth into two. Catholic, I never can believe that any of our priests would change the word of God or leave out any of the commandments of God. If you could convince me of the truth of what you say, it would go further to shake my faith in their honesty than all that you have yet said. But it cannot be. Here is a catechism which has the Ten Commandments, and there is no prohibition of worshipping images. The first is, Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. And the second commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. I wonder at the effrontery of men that in the face of day will make so heinous a charge against our priests. They certainly break the commandment that says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Culpeter, I admit that the charge is a grievous one, and if it is not true, I will consent to be considered a false accuser. You admit that the Dewey translation of the Bible is correct. It was made by Romish priests, and is a version in use among you, as far as you have liberty to read the Bible. Then, friend, I have a copy in my leather bag, and you shall read for yourself and compare what is there written with the commandments which you have in your own manual. For though they have omitted the second commandment in the catechisms and manuals which are put into the hands of the people, they have not had the impious audacity to strike it out of the Bible. 
Catholic. He reads the commandments out of the Dewey Bible. This, I confess, surprises me not a little. This is a thing I never heard of before. I must get my confessor to explain how this comes. Surely there must be some good reason for this, or it never would have been done. Culpeter, my dear sir, the thing admits of no explanation and needs none. You see with your own eyes that one of the commandments has been omitted or so mutilated that you never knew till this moment that God had given such a commandment. And this furnishes the strongest reason why the people should have the Bible in their own hands and not trust implicitly to the priest. And it shows clearly enough why the priests are so reluctant to let the people have the Bible to read. It is a fear lest they should see the contrast between the Romish religion and that of the Bible. Remember the words of our Savior, He that breaketh one of the least of these commandments and teacheth men's souls shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But what I wish, as I said, is not to dispute, but to come to the vitals of religion. A man may profess a true religion and yet have no experience of its vital power. The essence of all true piety is in the affections and purposes of the heart. God looketh on the heart, while men can only look on the outward appearance. You and I must soon stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if we are then found to have built our hopes on a false foundation, it will be too late to remedy the evil. Our Savior expressly and solemnly declares, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you, friend, have you good reason to think that you have ever been truly converted? You talk of your penances and of the priest's absolution, but believe me, no human priest ever had power on earth to forgive sins. And be assured that without repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, you must perish. He that believeth not is condemned already, and the wrath of God abideth on him. Catholic, he preached very well. But I'm not going to forsake Mother Church and marry the Mother of God, and all the saints for the heresy of Luther and Zwingli and such like. Culpeter, I do not wish you to have anything to do with Luther and Calvin. What I bring before you is not taken from them, nor from any other man. It is from the Holy Scriptures, from the words of Christ Himself, and from Paul and the other apostles. They all agree in this, that without holiness no man shall see the Lord. And this holiness does not belong to our nature, for we are by nature children of wrath and dead in sin. We must come to Christ by faith that we may have life. And as to the Virgin Mary, I admit that she was a blessed saint. But no mere creature should be worshipped. Show me one text of scripture which commands us to worship her, or any other saint or angel, and I will join your church. But there is none such. Almost all your religion is the invention of men, mere will worship. Even your adoration of the cross and making the sign of the cross so often is superstitious. There is not one word in the Bible from beginning to end which gives the least encouragement to any such thing. Your religious ceremonies were for the most part borrowed from the pagans, as some writers have clearly demonstrated. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.